You didn't put that up there, did you? Okay. All right. Turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we stated when beginning the service, we're going to be looking at the consummate purpose of God, the consummate purpose of redemption in Christ, of God's so great salvation, of the Son of God coming in this world offer himself for sinners like us. And the anticipation that one day there will be a new, whole, different world system. And uh, that it will be an eternal one. And that God's consummate purpose will be completed. And all of the trials and all of the preparations and all the things that we must face now will be over. And he is able to present us to himself with exceeding joy, as we're taught in uh, the epistle to Jude. And uh, so <clears throat> we look into this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 through 18. The apostle writes, and you'll remember that uh, the Thessalonians and those to whom Paul ministered, they didn't complete theological knowledge and they had a lot of questions. You remember if you read Corinth, question after question Paul had to answer. And there was a problem that was at Thessalonica, one that was causing them a great deal of difficulty, and that was that members were dying and they had mistaken the apostles' teaching about the second coming of Christ to be that he would come immediately. And of course he didn't teach them. He taught an imminent, not an immediate Christ. We'll deal with what it means, the difference later. Uh, but um, they, were, of course, were having members of their congregation die. And they thought, what, what's going to happen since uh, Christ has not come? And they, they've died. Their, their bodies are in the grave. So the apostle writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13, But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Biblical word, euphemism, for the believer's death. That they are not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, we're not going to go before, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Many dear saints of God believers who had to love and have labored with and, and walked with uh, leave this world and be uh, put into their graves. And these words have been such a tremendous comfort to them at such a time. If we look at this passage, we consider that there are many theories, there are many systems that have been developed around the teaching of the Lord's second coming or second appearing. Many of them. Nuances. And of course, uh, uh, that's not what Paul is dealing with here. Uh, Paul teaches here not to correct some wrong notion or doctrine about the Lord's second coming. Rather, he is here correcting a very disturbing misapprehension the Thessalonians had. 
that caused them a great deal of pain and difficulty and inward suffering. Yet, of course, in doing so, this passage yet affords one of the clearest teachings on what takes place at the Lord's second appearing or final coming in person and visibly. As far as the events of the second coming are dealt with here, what takes place concerning believers and what takes place concerning unbelievers are dealt with. Believers are dealt with in the passage we read and then unbelievers in the next verses in chapter 5. Of course, you realize that when the Bible was written, when the Word of God was penned, when, when Paul gave this epistle, he didn't put chapter 5 between chapter 4 and chapter 5. That was done much, much later. And the numbering of the verses, of course, that was done much, much later for our convenience and our memorization and our ability to turn to certain passages of Scripture. And so he, uh, he didn't write that. He continued, and it's the same passage in continuation, the same context, and he teaches us what's going to happen with believers and what's going to happen with unbelievers. And for God's children, for those who are redeemed by the blood of God's Son who belong to Him, for the consummate and glorious, blessed hope of the believer will be completely fulfilled at our Lord's second coming. So that we're taught in Titus 2.13 that if by God's grace He has saved us and worked in us, that grace teaches us certain things. One of those things that's in the heart of God's people is that they are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The redeemed of Christ, those who are redeemed from sin, those who are saved from sin, those who are delivered from eternal destruction. They're redeemed. We are redeemed for Him. We are His. We belong to Him. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We belong to the Son of the living God. Joyfully so. Would never want to take our life out of His hands and try to again do it our way. Those who are in Christ desire to walk with Him, no longer their own, but He has redeemed us for time and He has redeemed us for eternity. And when He comes, that long-awaited, cherished hope will be realized. To be forever with Him. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Isn't that a wondrous word? Never separated with our God, who is our God forever and ever, as we're taught so many places in the scriptures and the Psalms. But also, at that time, that is the time of final judgment. That is the time of the judgment of the world. It's not separated by any periods. That's systematically man's teaching uh, sometimes that's been devised. The judgment of the world comes when Christ appears the second time, as clearly taught in Scripture. So the Apostle Paul goes on to mention that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, when he says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I write unto you. In other words, he's saying, don't look for signs in this world. Men do that. They do fanciful preaching. They've got all kinds of signs that are taking place. Paul says that's not going to be the case. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Why? For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Never heard of a thief coming on somebody's door and knocking on it and saying, hey, I want your jewelry. That's not announced. Christ comes as a thief. No man knoweth the day or the hour. No man knoweth, not even the times or the seasons. Just as, as the Lord himself said to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, 
Of the times and the seasons, you have no need. He was saying the same thing. Uh, to, to know. You won't know them. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So we have here the wondrousness of the saints gathering unto Christ when he comes and appears the second time. Also, at the same time, the judgment of the wicked. All things are moving toward this final purpose of God. And this purpose is unavoidable. He shall come. He shall come. The Apostle Peter, of course, in 2 Peter 3, teaches us something very important. And that is that he's not going to come until everyone whom God chose in Christ, whatever nation or country they're in, shall hear the gospel of the Son of God and shall first come to repentance. He's not going to lose, not one. So we don't know when that will take place. But he's going to save all of those the Father gave him to redeem. The believer, knowing this, and laying hold of this will be affected in the way he or she lives out their lives in this world. In other words, if you and I truly believe this, if we're truly waiting the coming of our blessed Savior, if we're truly knowing that He shall come, consummate God's purpose, God's in control of this whole world and all things that take place. And if we understand that everything that happens, difficult things happening to us, God is working this for our eternal good. How blessed we are. And if we truly have this blessed hope, as it's called, it will affect the way we live in this world. It will govern the way we live and outlive our lives day by day in this world. And for instance, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, in verses 6 through 9, the apostle says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others. He's not talking about uh, you putting your head on your pillow at night and getting a good night's rest. He's talking about those who are completely unconscious of the reality of what's going to happen. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The unbeliever, the wicked, the one who lives for self in this world and whatever they can get out of it. The unbeliever, will be totally taken by surprise when Christ comes. When the judgment of that great day comes. Indeed, thinking peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. No one shall escape that coming day of judgment. Not a single one. Conscience in man tells him that. It's coming. And we want to look into this passage and consider the context in which Paul was writing here. And he reveals a mystery. And he does so to the comfort of the saints. What does he mean by a mystery? Well, a mystery in the biblical sense is something that was not made known until that time. It wasn't made known in the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't made known even to the other apostles. It was made known particularly to the Apostle Paul. So when he says he speaks by the word of the Lord, that means Christ himself is the one who taught him this. He was in a very special, unique place being taught by the Lord himself and giving that information to us. The Lord doesn't do that now. He teaches us by his word only and in his word. But what Paul was saying was that the Lord made known to him something that was not known before. And so it's, it's 
a mystery in the biblical sense is a truth before hidden, now made known. To be very clear with the precise meaning. So God makes known by special revelation what we have need of. What we need. Not what would tickle our intellect. Or simply satisfy curiosity. Oh, looking at all the events and the things happening on the world and uh, tickling men's minds with, with fanciful things as if they were making some kind of horror movie. That's not what's done in Scripture. That's done by men. That's done to grab the attention of men who love the sensational. But what Scripture teaches us is that God doesn't give us His truth to satisfy curiosity or to tickle the intellect. The most that God makes known about the events of the second coming of Christ are to be found in this passage. The passage we read, verses 13 through 18, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. What the apostle is telling us is that these things are otherwise unknowable unless the Lord has made this known to him and through him to us. So Paul employs again that language, sometimes used truths that are now made known. For instance, as God had judged the Jewish nation and the believers were not to get in mind that this meant that all the Jews were cast off forever, that God has many Jews, according to the election of grace, he's going to save. And the Apostle Paul then writes to the Romans in Romans 11.25, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, about this. He says, this, this, this mystery... That blindness only partially, partial blindness, has happened in part to Israel. Only part of this nation will be blinded. God has a purpose so that he makes that known to them. And similar truth, of course, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and the gathering of his own unto himself and the wondrousness of being raised from the dead. My, what a tremendous blessing God has given us in teaching us these things. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read it together this morning. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. These truths, are presented only to true faith, the faith of God's people. A faith that Paul uh, describes as the faith of God's elect in Titus. The faith that is the wondrousness of God's gift that comes by being begotten of God, knowing then that these things are true, and knowing and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're presented to us. They can only be embraced by faith indeed. And then have their desired effect. You remember God doesn't give us truth just so that we'll be satisfied with that. And we can, uh, like we're watching some kind of movie and, and we're, we're getting our brains tickled. That's not what it's about. What is clearly made known here is to govern our new life in Christ. It's to govern the, out, the way we outlive this life in the world. Those who died in the Lord, Paul is telling the Thessalonians and us, those who died in the Lord and the Lord Jesus by His death has transformed the believer's death into sleep, as it were. They rest in Him. That's a wondrous thing. We'll deal with that in, in the conclusion of this lesson a little bit more. But um, those who have died in the Lord will participate in the events of the Lord's second coming. Just as surely as those who are alive when He comes. 
and for the comfort of the saints. That's what Paul is doing. Comfort one another with these words. Those who have died, those who have gone on before you, they're not going to miss out on this second coming. They're not going to miss out on the glorious return of Christ. They're going to come with him. And uh, we're all going to be joined together. That's a wondrous thing. We who are in Christ, we're going to see each other again. It might be if the Lord tarries and we have to leave this world through the avenue of death. We're, we're still going to be together again. There's still a coming, a great gathering. And uh, this is something, of course, we're taught in Scripture. Isn't that a wondrous thing to know? Wondrous indeed from the Word of God. So Paul was teaching something here to govern the grief and the despair that would otherwise be debilitating to those who'd watched those who they loved and who were in the Lord die. They will be as part, those who've gone on, have be, will be just as much a part of the great gathering as those who are alive when Christ again returns. The Lord, when He comes, He doesn't give warning. He doesn't issue uh, an announcement over the internet. He doesn't tell when He's coming. The Lord comes suddenly. He doesn't give warning of that so that the truly believing are to be always in a state of readiness. You see, that governs our life. If we thought, well, the Lord's not coming because we don't have these certain events that men think are going to take place at His second appearing, then we'd kind of put that out of mind. The Lord doesn't let us know. He, from our vantage point, it's He could come at any time. We are to be perpetually looking for Him. We are to be perpetually living in a condition that awaits His appearing. It, a hope that governs our lives, not just what we think. And so, <clears throat> the Lord will come suddenly. It will be without warning. Those who truly believe are to be living godly in Him in a state of readiness. We have that. Of course, you read again in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 3 and 4. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Well, I tell you what, we got all this stuff to take care of a woman when she, she's delivering a baby now uh, so that she doesn't have to have go through all the pain they used to, but she knows only when a certain time comes that the time is there, right? I'm not a woman. I'm still a man. I'm never going to call myself a woman. I don't care what the world's doing with it now. But those who've had babies, I'm sure you could tell me, you know when the time is, and only when the pain comes. comes suddenly. Right? Well, some ladies are not in your head, so I'll take your word for it. comes suddenly. And without warning, I mean the day before, everything might have been just fine. Then all of a sudden, boom, the pain comes. It's time to go to the hospital or whatever. Sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But Paul in verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should take you as a thief. And then the Apostle writes in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The Lord is teaching us in His Word to be alert to His coming, to be aware that He could come at any time. This is to be in us. This is to be in the heart and the expectation of the believer. He could come at any time as far as we're concerned. That means imminent, by the way. An imminent appearing of our Lord. Let us not sleep. Let us not 
be carried away with the things of this world in such a way that it takes our attention away from the most important. And then uh, he writes in verses 8 and 9, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, as consistent throughout Scripture, the gathering of the saints and the judgment of the wicked is shown to take place at the event of the Lord's second appearing. Uh, long, well, in, in uh, the 1800s, a system developed that kind of divided all these things, never known before in the history of the church. And uh, it can be uh, determined what, for some of the reasons for this. But it divided the second coming of Christ. He comes a second time, then he comes another time after that, and he comes another time after the end of a certain period. But the scripture does not teach that. It was not taught. Not until that period in history. And became a very fanciful system, even to this day. So, the scripture shows that this gathering of the saints and the judgment of the wicked takes place at the same time. It's called the day of judgment as well as the second coming. This is consummate, conclusive, without any division of time indicated between the gathering of the saints unto Christ and the judgment of the wicked. So in what we term the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse the Lord would teach before he would go to the cross, before his arrest, before those events, and he would teach that there's coming a day of judgment. Uh, yeah, there come all kinds of calamities that are going to happen on the earth. They've happened all the while. He says this is not the end, though men take those things and use them as such. But in Matthew 25, the Lord, when he comes in his glory, all nations shall be gathered before him, we're taught. All nationalities, all peoples will be before him when he comes. It's a solemn day that is to take place. The saints shall be gathered unto him. The world shall be judged in righteousness in that day. God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whom he raised from the dead, as Paul would preach to the Athenians in uh, Acts chapter 17. Since the time of the Lord's second appearing is not revealed in Scripture, it is to us always imminent. And again, that means for our perspective, it could be any time. We don't know. We're not given the time. And thus, to us, his coming is at hand. James writes in James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And then he says in the next verse, The judge standeth before the door. As if we're to realize he's almost ready to come in. Have you ever been to a trial in this world? Uh, you know, the judge may be behind the door standing there. We don't know when he's coming in, but he'll come in and the door will open and he will come. Our judge, our Savior, stands before the door. He is ready to come. The, when the Apostle Peter speaks of the consummate purpose of God in 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. That means we don't know when it is. It's at hand. It's imminent. It's going to take place. Uh, then we better conduct our lives in accordance with this realization that Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. We're going to stand before him. And those who are his are going to be with him forever. By these revealed truths, our hearts are drawn out 
to live in view of things that are eternal. Our affection to be on things above. You see, we've got this problem that we tend to get our attention on the things of this world. We want to be so eased in this life and have our so much fun times. Know this. We're going to do these plans and that plans. And the next thing you know, our hearts are taken from Christ. Our hearts then are on the things of this world and we're carried away with these things. We're not living in accordance with the, 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 the promise that Christ shall come again for us. We're not living in the reality that this world is temporary. We're taught love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're taught that our affection is to be on things above, not on things on the earth. We're not to be carried away with the cares and the pleasures of this life so that we cause a problem with the Word of God being removed from our desires and our thoughts and what we're taught there. So, our heart, if it is truly on our Lord, who came into this world to redeem us unto God by offering Himself for our sins, calling us by His grace to trust and look to Him and come to know Him aright, that He brings us to God. And He brings us to God in a major sense by showing us Himself. He is God made known to us, our blessed Lord. We, we are His. We're reconciled to God in Him. And we begin to see glimpses of His glory now, but very much just glimpses. We can't begin to comprehend what it's going to be when He comes in His glory. We're talking about the glorious Son of the living God through whom the world came into existence. We're talking about the glory of the Son of God who reveals all the wondrous divine characteristics. We're talking about the glory of the Son of God who came in great humility and the greatest of incredible love to offer Himself for our sins that we might forever be His. then we are to be aware that He's coming for us. He's coming for us. He warns us not to be enamored with the world and the things of it. He warns us about these things. Have our hearts upon Him where they're supposed to be. Our desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I might know him in ever increasing measure. The apostle isn't teaching this for the purpose of removing earthly responsibilities. Evidently, there were those who thought the Lord was so coming immediately. They mistook Paul's teaching of imminent return for immediate return. And evidently, there's some that quit work. Well, why are you going to go to work? Why are you going to do these things? The Lord's coming. We're just going to wait on them. There are times that that's happened in church history. That there are those who've been so enamored by teachers thinking they know the time, they know the day, they know the hour, they know the season. The people have quit working, sold their possessions just to wait. They were deluded. You see, this does not teach us that we're to do away with our responsibilities. Not at all. It's to govern our conduct in the world. It's to govern the way we live in the world. In Titus 2, verses 11 and following, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It means all kinds of men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. 
that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, a people who belong to him, who are his. To lose sight of or lessen this blessed hope, to allow the heart to be taken up with the things of this world, and carried away with it is kind of tantamount to apostasy. It's a serious matter, of course, in Scripture. But what was this problem that Paul was correcting among the Thessalonians in verses 13 and 14 of the First Thessalonians 4? But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Oh, we sorrow when we lose a loved one. But we're not to engage in this uncontrollable sorrow that the world sometimes engages in because we know what has taken place. If we lose a loved one, oh my, it's going to be terrible. Yeah, it's going to be hard on a loss, but I'll tell you what. If they belong to the Lord of glory, if they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're far better off than you are. Far, far better off than you are in this world. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Well, you see, the problem appears to be a fear that those who departed were going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. They were going to miss out on the, the events of this glorious appearing of the Lord which shall come. And uh, so... They'd given up hope here. They thought their deteriorating bodies had been put in the ground. And they're going to miss this glorious gathering unto Christ. And so Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. The heathen didn't have any hope of a resurrection. Oh, there were philosophers who believed in the existence of the soul apart from the body. But they had no hope of the resurrection from the dead. So the pagan world lived in hopelessness. Isn't that a horrible thing? Outside of Christ and the knowledge of Him, this world is a hopeless place. And to lose a loved one is hopeless. The apostle wrote of those who have no hope. Having no hope in Ephesians 2. And from the language that Paul uses here, those whose bodies died, slept. I mean, it's clear in the passage they're called those who died in the Lord. But the Lord has transformed this matter of death for the believer into glorious rest. So you hear the Lord himself talking about Lazarus. When Lazarus died, Lazarus sleepeth. When uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons, was stoned to death, when he uh, declared the truth to those who hated it and was stoned to death, the Lord Jesus, of course, he saw standing a wondrous thing. The scripture says he was stoned says he fell asleep. <laughs> he fell asleep. Well, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I know it's a good thing. I've come off this medicine because of pain, you know, for the surgery, and I've been off it a good while, but it was not easy coming off it. One of the problems was insomnia. Boy, would I love to sleep. <laughs> it's a good thing to sleep. Oh, how, how I long to sleep. By the way, I did last night slept. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but that's far different matter than the horrendousness of what men think of as death. The believer should have no horrors of death. Death itself. We don't want to go through the process. We don't want to go through the difficulty and the hard things faced. Some the Lord is pleased to take suddenly. Some they don't have to go through much pain and suffering. Some go through a great deal. Whatever God's purpose is being accomplished in them. But death itself we need not fear. It's sleep. 
to the believer. And it's not unconsciousness. It's not unconsciousness. You have a consciousness when you're asleep. And some have dreams that scare them to death, you know. And they, I mean, you have it, it's to be with the Lord when these who sleep in Him, He brings with Him. They come with Him. When He comes, Jesus will bring with Him, as we learn in verse 14. That is from heaven. And it would seem that these Thessalonians were afraid that their bodies were forever perished. doesn't appear that they had the problem with their soul because philosophers taught the existence of the soul apart from the body. So they must have thought the bodies are perished. They're perished forever. And again, they got the idea that the Apostle Paul taught not simply an imminent which means could be at any time, but an immediate return of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lifetime. But as their dear brethren, their brothers and sisters in Christ began to die, they began to lose the hope of their part in the second coming, in the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would explain why Paul is dealing particularly with what will happen with the departed saints at Christ's coming. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe, that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So, the Apostle Paul then gives the solid basis for the Christian hope. There is a solid basis for the Christian hope. And what is that? That Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the grave that the Son of the living God died. He died. He died. He was put in the tomb. He was dead. And God raised him from the dead. Yeah, there can be and is no greater empirical evidence for the resurrection of Christ than what we have in Scripture and in history. But God must give that miraculously by His grace in the heart of the believer who comes to indeed recognize God raised Christ from the dead. He who died on the cross, He whose body was pierced by the sword, He whose bones were all out of joint, was taken down from the cross, put in the grave, and three days later, the angel says to the women, He is not here, for He is risen as He said. This solid basis of hope the apostle now is bringing to the Thessalonians that God raised Christ from the dead, and in the resurrection of Christ is guaranteed something else. It's guaranteed the resurrection of everyone who dies in Him to be likened unto His. He's the first fruits of those who slept, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul doesn't often refer to the Lord with simply his personal name, Jesus, alone. It's the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ the Lord. But when he does, when he does so, it's speaking of this 
fact, this glorious truth that God raised him from the dead as a man, as the man Christ Jesus. And uh, it's to emphasize his resurrection also as a man. Uh, he does this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The infallible securing of the bodily resurrection has its basis in our Lord's resurrection. The believer's resurrection to glory is guaranteed by the Lord's resurrection to glory. In His resurrection is guaranteed that of the believer. As we learn, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15 very clearly. So then, from that miraculous gift of faith, that wondrous gift that God gives, which enables believers to know and fully embrace that God raised Christ from the dead, there is that indisputable truth that those who sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That faith in the resurrection of Christ is wondrous. It is as secure as coming resurrection from the grave. It is as secure as the resurrection of Christ. He is the first fruits of those who sleep. And in verse 14, when we read, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The if here in this verse has the force of sense. There's no doubt attached to this whatsoever. When Christ comes, the saints who have departed will not simply remain in heaven. And their bodies will not remain in the grave. But will come with him by the purpose and the power of God. And be caught up then together with the living saints. And the great gathering of that glorious day. Isn't it a wondrous thing, this blessed hope? We can look at the world. We can see all that's happening in this fallen world in which we live. How many times those who've come up with so many signs, they're assured that Christ is coming because they've got all these signs that happen throughout history. Then they're proven wrong. We don't look for signs. We look for the Savior. We await Him. But we know that God has a purpose that's going to be consummate. And whatever we see taking place in this world is not going to prevent it. He's not going to stop it. And our God has the final word. Not man. The living God who is over all things. Christ is coming. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. My, shouldn't our hearts cry out knowing him? Shouldn't he cry out like John the Apostle when he concludes the book of Revelation? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. The world is not going to uh, go on as it is forever. God is going to bring his judgment. It will take place and the saints are going to be gathered unto him for sure. So there could not be a more firm, solid basis for our hope than the very resurrection of Christ. If you believe that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him.
this confidence does not come as a result of religious uh, myth of some type or speculation or unfounded hope. It rests upon the sure and certain historical foundation that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God raised Christ. God will raise through Christ those who sleep in Him. No saint will miss the glorious events of that great day, not a single one. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 6 when He says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. The last day of human history. But permit me a few more minutes. There is in the conclusion of this passage or message that something of great importance to be further drawn from these verses. Cannot help but notice something here in the passage. The passage speaks of the believer's death in a euphemistic way, as sleep. Sleep. Those who sleep in Jesus. Those who are asleep in Him. Those who are resting in Him. Like we go through the trials and the difficulties and the hard things we're facing in this world and then we rest in Him. Speaks of the believer's death as sleep. Isn't that something? You'll never find it speaking of the death of our Lord as sleep. Our Lord's death is never spoken of as sleep. Jesus died and rose again. Death is not a natural part of life as false human philosophy describes it. Death is unnatural. When God created our first parents, the only reason they died was what? They sinned. And the wages of sin is death. It's by one man. Death came into the world. And it's passed upon all men for that all have sinned in him and through him in this human race. There's only one reason for death. Sin. Sin is the reason for death. Then why is it that every time you read of Christ's death, it's death, it's not sleep? Why? Because he bore all the worst that death can possibly be and bring. He was spared nothing. I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend one who knew the most horrendous suffering that has ever been. Who can cry, I'm a father. All things are possible unto thee. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. I can't comprehend one who willingly died with all the horrors that death presents under taking the wrath of his father against sin. It wasn't against his sin. He never sinned. It was against our sins. He'd taken our sins unto himself. On him, our sins were laid. And so, Christ died for our sins, was buried 
rose again the third day. He took the wages that were paid to him that we had earned by sin. Because he transferred all the penalty of sin to himself for those in him. And who would be called to trust him, look to him, have nothing to bring. Have no righteousness whatsoever of our own, no works we could produce that God would accept because we were sinners, defiled, undone. But we read in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He tasted all of the horrors of death in full. In full. You know, I'm glad for modern medicine. I am. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that when someone comes and they're going to die of some horrendous disease, there are ways that they can mitigate that, that they can do away with the pain. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's a wonderful thing. But the Lord did away with no pain. Nothing. Whatsoever. He bore all that death entails and all the pains that death entails and all the horrendousness of what this means from the Father's wrath. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy. All the horrendousness of death our Lord understood. But for the believer, sleep. Isn't that something? For the believer, sleep. There's total victory over death for those who are joined in a living faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in facing death and what it means, you read the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 literally taunting it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of sin is death. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord tasted all the horrors of death. But for the believer, sleep. <laughs> sleep. How wondrous. You've never heard, never felt the reality of being a sinner. That's the most horrendous evil there possibly is. Lightly it's thought of now. But when God opens the heart to see one who has turned from him in sin, then to realize that Christ died for our sins, taking all that our sins deserved, stretching out his holy arm of salvation and calling us to come to him, If thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead and you call upon him in faith that's salvation. Confessing him as Lord only. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved. For with the heart 
confession is made unto salvation. With the mouth. Okay, I missed part of that. Confession made unto salvation. Quite a passage, isn't it? What a passage. May God bless the ministry of His Holy Word.